Mr. Shabali is catching up with friends who are arguably more talented than him. Hi-ho, Mishka Shabali here. Uh, I guess that's the official int- the intro now. I'm just I'm embracing my, uh, my inner Kermit the Frog because... It ain't easy being green. It isn't. The um, hey, welcome back. Thanks for uh, thanks a ton for listening. The really cool episode today. I, uh, I most of you have heard me ranting and raving about my friend uh, Kyle Pogue, who's one of my road wives, my my road brood, um, and uh, fantastic comic, uh, sub just uh, degenerate subhuman, and uh, one of my favorite ultraviolet puppy dogs uh out there in the world um he was he was i think he was featuring or hosting at the comedy fort in uh, fort collins which hopefully i'll make it out there at some point this year uh he was working with dean del rey who is a uh a comedian, a mus- uh, recovering musician, a human being. I've I've had a target on this dude's back for a while. I uh, we know a ton of people in common. Uh, Dean Del Rey is um, he he was a musician for Jesus twenty twenty five years, and then at forty four he started doing comedy. And I think he's in his mid-50s now, and he's um, incredibly successful as a comic. And I just think it's so fascinating and so cool that at an age when uh, when people are tapping out, when they're giving up on their careers, their dreams, their marriages, their physical health, uh, sometimes life itself, uh, Dean Del Rey was starting again new and he fucking did it and it worked and he's a great comic and he's had a, like a wild career. He just opened up for Metallica um, and, you know, he's worked with some huge comics. He's back out on the road this year. And the one of the things that I really love about him and I love about his trajectory is not the stuff that we have in common of a sort of fanatical devotion to rock and roll, but his uh, enduring enthusiasm. Uh, he is into shit. He really, the stuff that he loves, he loves with his whole heart. And, um, for a, uh, for a rock and roll degenerate, he is such a nerd. He knows so much, um, about, about music, about film, about art, about comedy, about life. Um, I, I don't know. I just think it's a super cool story. Um, and I love his podcast. I really, um, if, if you're listening to this, you probably know who he is. You've probably heard his podcast, but if you haven't check it out because he's a very smart guy and it's fascinating to hear him, uh, interviewing his guests because you can hear him sort of talking and listening and thinking at the same time. He's a, a very, engaging intellect and and a really charming dude you know the podcasts are fucking weird i don't know why we do this shit the um and it and when you go into it you don't know how it's going to be uh you're always rolling the dice um but it's i for me i i find it so interesting to sort of listen to him talking to his guests and hear the moment where they uh where they fall in love with him the and where they really like sort of start to open up start to relax uh start to cackle you know you definitely hear some big laughs there um 
So, uh, yeah, it was really cool to, uh, to be able to sit down with him and, and do this podcast. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate that he was, you know, willing to spend the time with me, um, as I have no profile in this world, but, uh, unsurprisingly, uh, Dean has enduring love for and sympathy for the underdog. Um, I will be back out on the road. I'm leaving tomorrow morning, flying out to Columbus, Ohio. I'll be, uh, doing a gig at the Union, uh, my favorite bar in the world, uh, in my favorite town in the world, Athens, Ohio, on July 30th. Um, I have October 22nd, I think that weekend, I'll be in uh, Austin, Texas for Altercation Comedy Festival. And I'll be doing a show at my house on September 24th uh, with my friend uh, Rad Pinkard performing and a bunch of other comics. I'm still sort of shaking it out and then hopefully we're going to get back to um as i'm sort of emerging from my years of darkness uh we're going to try and do monthly house shows again uh so we'll be starting that up in uh september 24th then october 15th and uh and on into oblivion um so again thank you guys so much for listening there's uh some new tunes up on uh, patreon.com slash Mishka Shabali. About to put up a bonus podcast where my mom answers uh, listener questions. Uh, so be sure to check it out. And for now, uh, dig my conversation with Dean Del Rey. Dean, first, thank you so much for doing this, dude. The... Um, one of the things that I really love about you is that uh, you've never forgotten being the little dude, uh, being the underdog, being the guy like, hey, can I get five minutes there? Or, you know, so um, I really I'm appreciate still that. I'm still that dude. <laughs> <laughs> the, I was just telling Bobby Lee yesterday, it's like, I just want to get to a level where I don't have to beg for spots. That's I don't, I don't need fame or fortune. I just don't want to beg. <laughs> The, it's funny though. It's the, you know, listening to your podcast and stuff. That's one of the things that to me is like, I like you. I'm a fan. I I want only the best things for you in life. And also I, I would kind of hate it if you ever got to that point because you would lose, I feel like you would lose some of your deanness. Like you still feel like one of ours. Oh no, I have, I'd be like a Stanhope, man. I'd be the same fucking guy. <laughs> I just wouldn't have to stress, you know, and then yeah. I might live longer, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be famous. I, I wouldn't mind being just a theater level though, where there's no check drops. There's uh-huh. no fucking, you know, check drops or the demon of comedy. And, uh, and people are there for the show at a theater. It's not a papered room. It's not a, it's, uh, you know, they're there for an evening of comedy. So that would probably be the dream level, like a, you know, 700, 800 seat kind of a cool little theater. There's no, uh, there's no radio contest winners there. Oh you know, yeah. Yeah. Or paper or bachelorette rooms, parties. Paper yeah. rooms are uh you know a nightmare because it's just kind of like you, you, they don't know who you are at all. You can tell right away. 
<laughs> you drop a couple jokes and they're like, huh? Is he going to do impressions or what? Come on. You know, the, um, I mean, it, it's, it's convenient for me to shit on comedy clubs because I don't really ever get into comedy clubs. The, yeah. but, um, in, in so many ways, man, I feel like that's like the comedy clubs are like the death of laughter. I don't the, believe that. I believe that a lot of them get it right. And a lot of them get it wrong. The ones that get it right are the ones I want to work. And I'm constantly pounding on the door. Uh, I was very lucky early on that uh, Wendy at the comedy Works saw me open for Burr at the Belco. And she took a chance and started headlining me. Same with uh, Molly at the punchline in San Francisco and there's a lot of magic rooms out there. And those are the ones that I really want to do. Uh, you know, I just did the comedy fort in Fort Collins. Absolute oh, yeah. magic room gets it right all the way across the board. You know, the problem is when you start in the holy grail of comedy clubs as the comedy store, like I did. And then you get out there, you think everybody's going to be like the comedy store and you find out quickly it's not. And you're like, oh, my God, I need to find people that get it. And when you do, you want to work those rooms an uh, uh, Acme, you know, in Minneapolis, uh, the Comedy Addict. Uh, and these are still rooms I'm trying to get in. But, you you know, the comics talk. They're like, oh, my yeah. God, you got to do this room. You got to do this room and this room. And uh, they don't mention the ones you don't want to do because, <laughs> you know, they just say, do these so, yeah. yeah, I don't think comedy clubs are the death of laughter. I think it's um, comedy own, uh, club owners, certain ones. It's it's tricky. You know, The um, I was at the comedy fort when they were, like, building it out, and David Rodriguez, you know, sort of, like, gave me the, the walkthrough as they were putting it together. Um, and the he's such he has such a deep investment in in comedy in people in comics in audiences and audience experience you know the it's it's awesome to hear that you had a good experience there the i it's tricky because the to do what we do i mean I, i feel like we're if you do it right you're able to commodify your passion and the I don't know that, and and sometimes it feels like it would be, it, it would be better if if there were just there was just no money involved. You know the, um, I, I've done a bunch of stuff with Glenn Wool, and he's an incredibly funny dude, and also I never laughed harder than when we were in the car together driving show to show. Yeah, you know. That's, yeah, I mean, you know, look, we all want to be Fugazi, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, unfortunately, the world costs more than $5 now. And uh, it's just absolutely getting insane because the flights are are double right now what they were before COVID and the rents and the gas and everything is, you know, double and triple, but the club payment level is still the same. Now... Uh, I don't complain because if you don't like it, get the fuck out. That's all I can say because I absolutely love this. I've been on stage for 32 years, you know, 37 years actually. And, you know, music and then comedy. And I know what the gig is, but I love doing it. 
And uh, I've been able to do it for the last 10 years somehow and survive by doing other things. You have to have other irons in the fire until something hits. And then it's just one thing, it seems, that hits and bam, everybody's on board, you know. And I'd hate to uh, I'd hate to see people quit and then they didn't know a week later something was really going to happen. This is something, so you and I, there's a, a, a million different sort of like points of, uh, uh, you know, points of convergence in our stories. I, you know, I'm a songwriter and I come to it from a music background and then um, sort of got like lured into comedy. But the, um, the, the thing that I really want to quiz you about is the thing that we don't have in common, which is that... Um, you are such a fan, and I fucking love that about you. You're such an enthusiast. You're really into shit. The you do this thing on your podcast where you have, um, you have like Chris Farley level enthusiasm, but you're you're you have such a deep knowledge of. Uh, not just the minutia of rock and roll and albums and producers and stuff like that, but it's like, um, oh yeah, I knew this roadie on that, you know, the toys in the attic tour. He also, you know, the, that's the same guy who was, who got fired from stage, you know, by system of a down or whatever the fuck the, um, you, you know, to, to have been a professional artist for as long as you have, that's a fucking grind, but Every time I listen to your podcast, you just seem so fucking stoked about everything. And how the hell do you do that, man? Well, I, you know, look, I played music for 25 years. Okay. Crazy grind. Then basically did a self-retirement. I was like, I did it. You know, there's, there's, it's not it's i've i've done the run you know Uh after the illegal downloading was happening and everything i was like i'm i'm good and i didn't quit bitter or anything i was like holy shit that went longer than the couple months i thought it was gonna go (laughs) you know so and, and i look back at the career and uh somebody somebody had me on the radio and they said uh We've got failed musician, successful comedian on right now. And I go, whoa, 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 failed musician. I did it for 25 years without a job. I would call that a fucking win. But people like to, to you know, look at success by fame and monetize, you know, like monetary status, which is completely the wrong way to look at art. 100%. I mean, you know, because that, that's the Kardashian effect. People, you know, they're famous and, and successful and rich. Yeah, but did they do anything that people are going to give a fuck about in 20 years? You know, did they yeah. change anything? Did they do any art? Is there anything hanging on someone's wall? And, uh, you know, the way I stay positive is... I got a job after doing music for 25 years and I, I sold motorcycles for three years and I was like, fuck this. Cause you are surrounded by people that are miserable and do not like their lives and hate what they're doing. And I loved motorcycles. 
Like I love comedy and like I love rock. And I was like, oh, these people hate their lives. I got to get out of here because it is a fucking poison, my friend. It is a, uh, uh, you think COVID is bad? Fucking work at a job with miserable people. That will kill you a slow death. You will wish COVID took you out. You know, it is it is brutal, man. So I started doing comedy and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm back. I'm, I don't care if I don't make any money or whatever. I'm doing something that I've always wanted to do. I wanted to do comedy my entire life. So... And, you know, to be podcasting, all this shit I wasn't doing 12 years ago. I didn't have these friends. I didn't, you know, the friends I have now are better than any of the friends I've had my whole life. So the whole thing has changed at 44 years old. You know, just keep, you know, it's like those fuckers that were out there panning for gold during the gold rush. I don't know if it's so much as it was about getting rich as just kind of getting out of the house. <laughs> you know what I mean? Getting away from the fucking grind and being out there, you know, trying to find something. That's what joke writing is to me every day. It's it's panning for gold and it's it's keeping me alive at 56 years old and and keeping me uh you know sharp. I'm 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 around people that are in their 30s. I'm not some fucking tumbleweed like dude in a blazer on stage talking about fucking Magnum PI. I'm out there <laughs> doing it at the highest level, opening for Bill Burr at like the LA Forum and uh, arenas and, and trying to figure it out. And there's no manual here, do arenas. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, so all of it is a beautiful uh, journey. And uh, so I stay positive because it's just unbelievable what I've done in my life. It's, um, you know, 44 is when, that's the age, I think, when most people have quit comedy. And a lot yeah. of people have, have quit at 34. And, yeah. you know, that's one of the things that's so, uh, William Burroughs has had this thing, you know, where people asked him why, um, you know, how he had lived so long. And he said, oh, you know, it's the heroin, you know, to kick heroin, um, you know, sort of all the cells die off and then new cells have to grow. And he said, well, you know, the reason I've lived so long is because I've just been growing the whole time. And I don't think the takeaway there is to do heroin for longevity, but that you need to keep growing, you need to keep learning, you need to keep evolving. Um, it, we, we, we understand that we, we like, we, I think we believe that to be true, but, um, but also still, you know, so many people have tapped out, um, not just on comedy, but on like life in general, you know, in their forties and, and you, you know, made like a hard right turn or, I mean, it sounds like you were, you know, chasing another dream that after you'd been able to sort of put a check in the box for rock and roll. Well, I should have been doing comedy since I was 16 years old or maybe 15. But back in the 70s, nobody, no kids were doing comedy. There was no comedy camps. There was no school. There was no YouTube. And in my eyes, the comedians, you know, they had sideburns and 
and long hair, they actually looked like they were probably in their 30s when they were really 20. You know, like I was listening to Carlin and Cheech and Chong and and Pryor. And even Eddie Murphy, I knew he was like 19 or something, but he still seemed older than me and the neighborhood kids. So to be able to go for it and finally do it and and really what um I, the reason i was able to do it and i think the number one death of america or people's dreams is credit card debt and uh you know and and just a uh a, a a a we're taught like you shouldn't be doing that at that age you're not a young man anymore you should be raising a family you should be and it's like fuck all that i was born in yosemite i'm already different you know (laughs) i was born in the mountains and and i grew up in the bay area where it was massively uh progressive different races as my best friends so everything is uh, different about me out of the gate as far as my, my, uh, my, you know, train of thought. The way I look at life is like, we're here once, man, and let's fucking find it, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, all, I, I got all the heroes that you probably have, you know, from Burroughs to Bukowski to Keith Richards to... To yep. fucking Matt Dillon, you know? I think Matt Dillon is one of the greatest actors uh, of my time. He picks and chooses key roles. He he doesn't need to be a superstar. He wants to do great art, you know? And I want to do great art, too. I think people look at me from the surface, and they think, ah, he's just some fucking L.A. rocker guy. And you couldn't be the furthest from the truth, you know? It's uh, there's so much more layers in there. So that's what I really enjoy about doing comedy is proving people that there's more there by the, you know, the jokes and shit. It's it's fun as hell to to find this, especially at 44, walking on the comedy store patio and just hearing people look at this old fucking guy, you know, and I didn't tell him anything about me. I just started doing the work, man. That's all I did. I didn't tell anybody one thing about me. I didn't say I used to play music. I didn't say I was in any movies, nothing. I just went there and started doing the work as a total stranger. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done and still is the hardest thing I've ever done. It's um, it's so good when when people underestimate you. And then you can just flip it on them. You know, that's my the... fuel. Like if comedy <laughs> yeah. was easy and I would have walked into the store and the doors were open and everything. I probably would have lost interest in a couple weeks, but what the patio didn't understand was their hate fueled me to get great. And I thank them for that. You know, they're hazing, not necessarily their hate, the hazing, you know, mm-hmm. And uh, it made anything I've ever wanted was hard to get, you know, anything I've ever chased is, uh, you know, music, uh, anything that I I love is usually almost impossible to get. People say it's not going to happen. And when they say that, I'm like, 
Oh, okay. And it's not a challenge. I'm just like, why isn't it going to happen? You know, little did I know when I started at 44, the ageism of Hollywood, I had no idea because all my heroes were older dudes, you know, Norm yeah. MacDonald. Uh, at the time I was watching these guys, uh, you know, Burr was my age, Marin, uh, these guys, Stanhope. Uh, I don't know how old he is, but, you know, I was in my 40s and so were the, these guys. And I was like, oh, well, you can do. Con I didn't know they had done it 25 years. I had no idea. I thought they were like, you know, three year in guys or something, not by their comedy. But just like I thought everybody was just like, yeah, we just tried comedy later. <laughs> I, the, I, I, I always told people that I was on the uh, the Sunhouse track of, or, you know, or Howlin' Wolf or something like that of like, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to peak in my 50s. That's when I'm going to start making my best records and shit. The and I think part of that was um, part of that was honest. And part of it was sort of trying to conceal my frustration with what I perceived as my failure to like to, you know, to peak by 27 and then to be dead by 30. Right. You know, the. You were talking about Matt Dillon. It's when I was at my lowest ebb, I got uh, I got strung out on. I think it's I think it's hydromorphone. It's um, it's called Opana. It, it was a painkiller that was sort of like the the next level up from OxyContin. And right. when I I ended up publishing a piece about it, and then I did a little research about it, and I f discovered that Opana was um, referred to as the blues, and it was the drug in drugstore cowboy. Yeah, Delada. That's the, the shit they're fucking with. The well, Delauded was uh, it was one of the things, but one the one of the other you know, their sort of um, opiates of choice was Opana. And when yeah. I found out that I had been doing, you know, falling asleep on the street doing the same drug that Matt Dillon in a movie, I felt cool. And the in hindsight, it's kind of dumb. <laughs> like I could have just yeah. enjoyed the movie without getting fucked up on that stupid drug. But, well, uh, I think Drugstore Cowboy is an absolute masterpiece. Um, there's this weird thin line with junkies and the junkie, uh, you know, um, glory and all that. Every junkie I've ever been around has been pretty much a piece of garbage. They'll steal your shit out of your own house and everything. There is that mystique of uh, somebody that's willing to actually go the furthest by injecting something into them to get high. And uh, that's always the craziest. But, you know, all of our heroes, you know, Keith Richards and stuff, they were lucky to have money because they could get out of the trouble they were in. And, and I do believe that, yeah, you know, my drug days were fierce and, uh, but they were great experimental times. And now I draw upon them later on, but, uh, I couldn't imagine just staying high or drunk the rest of my life because it's, uh, the actual feelings I get from stepping on stage are so radical of being completely engaged uh, with an audience when they're fully laughing. I couldn't imagine being high during that because I, I'm taking this in like it's sensory overload, actually, as, as hippie as that may sound. But it's, I'm just up there like, this is insane. These are actual strangers. They don't know who the fuck I am at all. And in a couple minutes, hopefully, they're dying laughing, which is the hardest thing ever to do. You know, 
music, somebody's going to tap their foot. No matter who, I don't care if you're a goddamn zombie, something in the music's going to make you tap your foot. But when you're up there with just you, a mic, and some thoughts, it's a wild ride. I, um, when I got sober, I stopped playing music for a long time because my music was sort of intimately tied to my alcoholism. And then, um, whatever, five or six years since I'd performed live, the Stan Hope hit me up to, or I, maybe I bothered him. I can't remember the, but I got a spot opening up for him at the Trocadero in Philly and I was super nervous. It's the, you know, um, because I just hadn't done it forever and hadn't done it sober. I, I couldn't remember, you know, ever having done it sober. And then I walked up on stage um, and people started clapping. And I was like, oh, God, they think I'm somebody else. This is going to go fucking horribly. And I walked up to the mic and I, like, started playing the first song. And then it, and then I got an applause break immediately because they recognized the song. And that just maximized my anxiety. We're like, oh, fuck, they know it's me. But I was, but it was a weird moment because I've, I've fucked up so many moments like that, but I was able to just like, be like, just chill out, just stay open, just let it in. You're arriving here. This is a moment. Just like, just fucking enjoy it. And, uh, I was definitely like shaking when I got off stage, but it, man, it was so great. It felt so good to, um, to put something out there and to have people get it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I don't I don't care what anybody says, you know, like I said, I'm not trying to do it to be famous or whatever, but fuck, man, when someone you're walking down the street, you know, like in New York, I lived there for three years and, you know, walking down and somebody goes, dude, I saw you last night. You're so fucking funny. I, I, you know, the people, when they say that, they have no idea. Look, I'm positive, but I wake up each day fucking God again. I got to get out of bed again, you know? So these people, they don't even know what frame of mind I'm in at that time. So to drop a, a, a piece of nugget like that, it, it just, it, it's just more fuel in the tank. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm making people laugh and, uh, and I'm loving what I'm doing. You know, I got ran over on my motorcycle like five years ago. And a lady hit and ran me at doing 70 in a Cadillac Escalade, plowed me. And then as I was sliding down the highway, people were like, did, you, did your life flash before your eyes and any of that shit? And no, all I thought was no regrets. So I knew... I could die right there, and there wasn't, I should have, I never did this, none of that. So anything from here on is gravy, man. You know? the I I don't know if this is legible. Yeah, no regrets. The, no regrets, The yeah. but K-N-O-W. Yeah. The, yeah. I, um, that's killer, dude. The, I mean, I really think... You know, you know, you were talking about your music career, and I've thought this sometimes about like you know relationships I've had with women or friendships or something like that, where the um, people are like, "Oh, another failed relationship," and I'm like, "No, nah, we just we completed it. We got to yeah. the end of it." And I I feel like that's um, I feel like that's you know sort of the sensation that you had with your you know with your time playing music that you were just like the I've done all the things that you know 
um, I did what I, 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 you know, we came, we saw, we kicked ass, you know, that you did what you wanted to do and it was time to do something new. Well, I realized something with comedy and music. The, the difference is with comedy, I still have massive, massive, uh, you know, work ethic and uh, drive. And when you're playing music with other people in a band, if it's not on a high level and you're just doing that daily grind of rock bars and, and clubs, you're going to be carrying people that don't have the passion and grind anymore. And you're carrying them because you want to keep going. And sometimes it's better to let them go. And once I let, let it all go and realized, wait, I could do comedy and apply all of this grind and passion. And it's just me. It, it, you know, to me, then it's like it's completely on because I, I don't wake up each day going, ah, fuck that. Fuck those guys and fuck these people. and fuck. I don't have any of that. My enemies are cancer and heart attacks at this age. That are my, that is my enemy, you know, nothing else. No one in the business. I don't give a fuck if someone's got something and I don't, I'm not like, man, I'm fucking, I don't have any of that. I yeah. just get up and go, fuck, I've got two spots tonight at the comedy store at 56 fucking winning, you know? Yeah. Comedy seller. I do the comedy seller and the comedy store. That's insane to me. You yeah. Know? The um, it's you know it, it's funny because the when I listen to you on your podcast, you're you're so engaged. Well, let's let's dive into the podcast because the I feel like people have this perception that when you're podcasting, that you're creating something sort of ethereal, or that it's just uh you know it's just a spooling like a roll of toilet paper or something like that, and you're not creating anything like lasting or meaningful. But um, but you've created this incredible body of work. The what six hundred plus episodes, six hundred fifty, and then a hundred and forty or something on the Patreon. Yeah, and uh, every episode, eleven years straight, never missed a Monday, and everyone booked by me, recorded by me, edited by me, and posted by me. There's no assistance. Unfortunately, wow. <laughs> there's nobody but me. And it's funny. The ego in me is like, how is this fucking thing not huge? I was the first guy to have ACDC ever on a podcast. Look, man, I fucking had ACDC on the podcast. That is fucking nuts. This is the... The reason I'm alive, this band, I saw this band and I was like, oh, I'm not going to join an outlaw motorcycle club. I'm going to play music. And that was the fucking God's honest truth. And here I named the podcast after their great Let There Be Rock song. It's called Let There Be Talk. And, and they've never done a podcast. They're basically not even sure if they're together anymore because Brian can't hear her anymore. Axel does a tour with them. We don't know anything about ACDC. One of the most mystery, you know, 
the mystique in this band is large. I mean, let's be honest. This band is a billion, you know, a billion dollar corporation. You wouldn't know it. You've never seen Angus driving around in a fucking Ferrari. You've never seen him in a private jet. You've never seen his fucking mansions. You don't even know what his wife looks like, but his wealth is fucking beyond. It's so huge. So, you know, for me to have them on the podcast and talk to them for over an hour with no rules was just mind boggling. And I'm, I, I, I'm mystified sometimes how this thing is not bigger. And, and my, uh, I, I want to add a third enemy to my <laughs> list. So heart attacks, cancer, and algorithm. Because oh, yeah. fuck off, man. I do not understand. And I am a computer savvy guy. And I'm looking at it like, how could this guy be talking about his butthole for an hour <laughs> and have a million listeners. And I have, you know, some of the great Josh Homme from Queens yeah. of the Stone Age twice. This guy does not do interviews. He calls me one day. I want to come by, talk on your podcast. I got some shit to air out. Come on, man. John Mayer, he hadn't done an interview in seven years after the Playboy you know, debacle, you know, he gets completely clowned because he's honest in an interview. And, you know, I'm looking at my podcast going, I can't even believe this thing. Look, it does. Okay. But this thing should be fucking massive, man. And the body of work, somebody one day is going to wake up because they are not promo junction. You know, it's not like it. Tell me about the new album. These are uh, evergreen interviews of people that have inspired me. I haven't had anyone on the podcast that I do not respect or didn't inspire me in life. I've been offered money to interview people and I, I don't do it and I need the money, but I'm like, nah, because I want the credibility of the show. But eventually someone's going to wake up and go, Hey, we want to license this podcast because there's, there's some fucking gold in this thing. And, uh, and I'm not just toot my own horn. But sometimes you got to, you got to be like, hey, man, are you guys fucking listening to this? You know, it's crazy. I, I, I want to offer you this. And this is, um, well, two things, actually. This is uh, Aesop Rock has a song called No Regrets. And it's yeah. about it's about a young woman, an artist, um, you know, the and then and she just draws her whole life. She just draws, you know, and then she sort of um, she's dying in a um she's dying in an old folks home and somebody says oh you know it's it's such a shame and she's like what are you talking about shame you know the um i every single dream that i had in my life i chased it i pursued it i fulfilled it like my work is done i i, I have no regrets you know a, a dream is a thing that you think about but that you don't fulfill i i never had a dream in my life every it was just all just a plan i planned to do it and i did it yeah. Um, and the, the other thing that I would tell you is that, um, whether the podcast is huge or not, um, it's really fucking good. There's oh, thanks, the, man. the, the depth of, um, I can hear you listening to your guests and yeah. the, and also over the course of an interview, I can, um, 
I can hear them opening up to you. The, I mean, you, you have a lot of people who are, you know, who are fucking huge stars who are a little like, uh, I don't know if I want to have this conversation or talk about this stuff, yeah. the, but you, the depth with the depth of your knowledge and the way in which you listen, I can hear people like really opening up over the course of the interview where they're sharing more. And then at the end of the interview, it's sort of like the, you've, you've forced them to be your friend and then that's when the interview ends and it's yeah. it's the um and i think that guys that look like you and i you know people people always talk about burt kreischer being a dummy that motherfucker is so smart if he's so dumb why is he doing so well why is he such a great storyteller why does why does he sort of weave narrative so deftly the you know sometimes the it's a great advantage for people to underestimate you or, you know, or think, think that you're dumb. But I, I honestly, I think you're a fantastic interviewer. I'm going to steal as much from you as I can, of your, your, you know, your style of interviewing and the, and even the premise of let there be talk, you know, because there's nothing more uh, radical or transformative than, than two people sitting down and sharing an, an open in-depth conversation. That's how people change their fucking minds, you know? Well, I approach the interview as far as I, I'm going to ask them the stuff that I know everybody wants to know. And I'm, I'm, I approach the interview how I know when people interview me, they ask me the same five fucking questions. And after a while, I'm like, this is complete fucking garbage because you, I shouldn't even be here. You don't really even care. And I'm doing this for I don't know why, <laughs> you know, uh, to hopefully put butts in the seats. Everything I do in my life is to try to put butts in the seats because all I care about is doing comedy. I don't give a fuck about movies or commercials or any of that shit. I do that stuff, hopefully, because in comedy, you have to have multiple irons in the fire. It's not the 80s where you're like, I'm a comedian and my manager and agent better find me something. That's not how it works. I'm 56. You think I want a TikTok and Instagram <laughs> and tweet and fucking, you know, all of that every day? I do it because I'm trying to get to a level to where I can continue doing stand-up comedy. And so the way I approach interviewing someone, one, it's only a subject, a person on there that I totally respect. Two, it's somebody that I've been wanting to ask these questions for 20, 30 years sometimes on this particular person. And three, I've been in the business all my life. So I know what the bullshit surface questions are and I stay away from them. You know, there was a time where uh, Howard Stern in the 90s, he just asked the same five questions. He became a different interviewer when that woman took over the show and and restructured and said, look, man, your people are going to be dying off. You need to expand. And he became a, a completely different interviewer. And uh, and I love what he does now, you know, and 
And of course, you know, people like uh, Marin, who who really who really dug in and 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 got into the uh, the process of it. You know, I listen to my early shows because sometimes I'll cut up a clip and put it out. And yeah, it was fucking horrible. And I'm still learning. And I think you need to listen to your own podcast. And and I take hours cutting out the ums, ums, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I, I cut all that out. Most people just throw the shit out in the air. But I'm like, hey, this is going to be out in the world forever. If I'm fucking gone, they're going to be like, look at this old interview right here with Rob Halford for three hours. This is wild. Here's a crazy interview with Allison Mosshart from The Kills. No one talks to her. This is great. You know, so I make sure that the entire interview is uh, free-flowing, but also super professional and fun. And I do, I don't make them become my friend. I think they realize like, oh my God, not, you know, it wasn't the bullshit. This was great. I had a good time and, and we end up uh, hanging out. You know, sometimes we don't. I think well, oh, you, I you win friend. you win people over is what I was trying yeah. to say. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, because I think they see the honesty and the sincerity of how much passion I have for this person. Like, look, dude, I don't give a fuck what you think about Kiss. Okay, I don't care what you think. You're hipster, fucking. You know, oh man, I'm the gatekeeper. I know indie music. I'm indie. I don't give a fuck about that. Because I love indie music, I love country music, I love rock, I love jazz, I love soul, I love disco. I don't give a fuck about anybody's gatekeepers of what they think is cool and who's the hip thing, you know. But Kiss was the reason I fucking fell in love with music, you know, the day I heard them. Yeah, it was comic booky, but it was the gateway, as Cedric Bixler from the Mars Volta would say. It's the gateway drug into music and it helps you find the great stuff later. And if you listen to Kiss, there's a lot of influences in there, you know, T-Rex and all yeah. of that. And so you can find other stuff from it. And I don't need to wear a shirt ironically or whatever. I, uh, you know, so when I talked to Paul Stanley at his house, my mind was fucking blown, you know, because I was like, this guy was on my wall when I was a kid. And I'm not like a tumbleweed. I'm not a hair metal tumbleweed. Where I, There's no good music. When somebody says that, I know not to talk to them because they're not trying to progress and get further in life and seek stuff. You know, they're like, get Leppard, pour some sugar on me, man. That's a jam. And those are people that just look back at music as like when they didn't have bills or student loans or a divorce, you know, that's yeah. what music is, which is cool. That's fine. Everybody looks at art differently and whatever it is inspires you. That's cool. But to me, to be able to talk to a Paul Stanley or, you know, dude, I had Mike Reno on from Loverboy. You don't like Loverboy? That's fine. But there's a point in time where Loverboy was everywhere and they fucking got some good songs, man. You know, I don't care what anybody says. I've tried to write fucking, you know, turn me loose. You know, it's hard to write a hooky hit song. Yeah. One of the, you know, one of my favorite moments was uh, you and Jed Apatow, just this, 
amazing, incredible sort of free ranging conversation. And then there was a little sidebar where you guys started talking about yeah, yeah, yeahs and uh, how how you know big fans you guys are. And like I came up with that band in New York. You know, we used to go see him on a Tuesday night for five bucks and watch you know Karen O. You know, um, tie herself to the mic stand with the mic cable and you know and watching uh, watching Nick Zinner's guitar rig evolve. He had this you know a little Marshall and a Roland Space Echo and a Roland cube and you know uh to amp switching and stuff like that you know he was he was one of those the sort of like knob turner guys that he was at home alone in his bedroom like playing a couple of chords and then turning the knob just a a tiny little bit and that's why his guitar always sounds fucking amazing but it was um it was so cool to hear you guys just sort of going off, sharing this moment of like, man, I'm really into that too, you know, the and to for your enthusiasm to just bubble over there. Um, the there's you know there are so many bands. That, I, I I just did a podcast last week with this 25 year old skater kid who I'm friends with, and he's he started writing these songs, and they're fucking amazing, and it's. It's like the, I mean, for me, my gateway band was uh, Guns N' Roses. You know, I still remember the first time that I saw uh, the video for Welcome to the Jungle, and it changed my life instantly and forever. Yeah. And the to to get sort of a little, a smidge of that sensation from any new band you hear now, it, to shit on the new stuff, it's such bullshit, man. It's like, you know, I'll so- sound like my dad being like, oh, all rap music sounds the same. It's like, no, there, there's there's always great shit out there. You just have to get over yourself and find it. Well, I don't think people really have the time to find it. They get married, have kids, they're at soccer practice and stuff. It's not their gig. I get it. I get it. But to say there's no good music, now you're just looking like an idiot. You know, you're like, get yeah. off my lawn, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> um, that is the furthest from the fact. Matter of fact, one of the prides of my show that I feel is seeking out new music and featuring these guys on my show because I know how hard it is to play music or be a new comedian or, you know, out in this world. And there is so much new music that is great. I think there's better music now. Now, look, we've got about 100 or maybe 200 amazing bands in my, you know, play of of the history of like 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. These are the fucking greats in my phone. But... In the last 10 years, I've seen some of the greatest rock and heard some of the best records. And there is so much out there from Tropical Fuckstorm to Rival Sons to this band I had on Monday called Goon from Los Angeles that sound like fucking Sparkle Horse meets Radiohead to uh, Houndmouth, who sounds like the band. And I'm going to see these bands. I don't go see bands anymore that have like nine new members and barely an original member. And I don't go to that anymore. I Because I saw those bands when they were original and it kicked my ass and I don't want to have bad taste in my mouth. So I go seek the new stuff like I did when GNR was out. Like I did when Jane's Addiction came out. Like I did when Rage Against the Machine came out. The yeah, yeah, yes, the strokes, 
You know, these bands blew my mind. Uh, Kings of Leon when they were fucking new. And that and, was a $10 ticket at the time. Yeah. And that's the and thing is go see, go I'd see the, fucking, the five or $10 ticket yeah. shows, you know, because that's where you're going to find the gems, you know? Yeah. And also though, it's awesome to watch like Marcus King, who is, I think hands down one of the best I've seen in 30 years. Uh, he's 24. I had him on the podcast when he was 21 years old. The guy barely could talk. He had no, uh, super shy, very introvert. You know, you could tell he was just a, uh, you know, a guitar playing kid in his room, but he wasn't the shredder. My key to great music is good songs. I don't give a fuck yeah. how great the guitar solo is. I don't care about guitar solos. Eddie Van Halen, yes. But I don't, you know, Instagram is just blah, 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 these people on there. And I'm like, oh, get it out of here. I need to hear great songs. And this kid has five records out right now. And I'm about to do a U.S. tour with him, 38 dates. And, you know, three years ago, we planned this tour and it was just going to be some clubs and COVID hit. And now here we are. Uh, you know, about to go out and he's bigger than ever. And we're doing like two nights at the beacon, two nights at the Ryman, two nights wow. at the wheel turn, the Masonic in San Francisco stubs in Austin. So we're doing these prestigious rooms and um, he's about to drop a new record on Rick Rubin's label. And the guy is unbelievable. He's so unbelievable that I'm fucking scared. I don't want him to fly or anything because, you know, the fucking super yeah. dupers go away. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm always worried about it. So I'm glad we're on a bus. Yeah, dude, your uh, your interview with Steve Cropper. I, I could have listened to 10 hours of that. You know that that guy just has every single story and to just to hear you guys just rap about you know the the encyclopedia of rock and soul records that he's played on the i mean that was just phenomenal i was like so grateful to you for doing that the, there's a guy everybody should know yeah there's a guy that everybody has heard there's yeah. a guy who is a fucking legend such and an was, elemental guitar player he was on the show i mean just you know, I love Telecaster. I love Steve Cropper, you know? Yeah. I love fucking Booker T and the MGs. And that Neil Young tour they did. I got to look that up. It's to this day still. I think it's, uh, you know, for me, I, I, I think because I had heard Crazy Horse for so long that when I heard this different groove and i've talked about it over and over because one of my prides of the show is having more drummers than anybody's ever talked to <laughs> but the whole thing is you put a different engine behind neil young's songs and it's just a completely different feel and it was great for him to say like yeah a lot of people hated it and i was like i thought it was one of the best have have you heard uh, Booker T's version of Eleanor Rigby? I haven't. Oh my god! I will send you a link to that. It's yeah. It's it, it's so eerie and so powerful, and uh, rather than being lonely, it's kind of sinister. 
I, you know, it was one of those things that, you know, and I'm sure you've had this experience too, of just having different records fall into your life at, you know, at the right time. Oh my when God, I was a kid, yeah. I, I, I picked up uh, flat duo jets and I picked up a Booker T and the MGs instrumental album. Yeah. And both of those records just, I, I mean, I think I still have them and I've, I've listened to, you know, I could tell you the order on that CD backwards and forwards, you know, the, that would like Johnny Cash live at Folsom in San Quentin. Um, you know, Otis Redding collection, stuff like those things just changed my life. Absolutely. And I I think one of the things, I think one of the reasons now why we're seeing this explosion of so much good music is the, I remember mowing lawns all summer long so that I could buy a burst Epiphone Les Paul, just like Slash. And it was whatever, 350 bucks. And that same guitar is like, 350 bucks now you know now, 30 years don't forget, later don't forget the musician's still making 150 a night the club yeah. musician <laughs> yeah i saw the greatest meme ever it said uh it was two musicians and they were kind of sitting uh in this club and the guy goes dude i just went to the year 3000 in the future and he goes what was it like and he goes we still make 150 a night. <laughs> I was like, wow, man. Wow. So fucking crazy. But yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, I mean, I think there's also, you know, when I was looking for uh, back in my day, fucking you had to go down to a telephone pole and put a flyer up bass player wanted. And then a guy tore a little piece off and then he called you on your home phone. And then you met him somewhere, and, and, and in one minute you knew he wasn't in the band. You're like, "Fuck this weirdo," you know. But I've now, absolutely done that. Yeah, and now it's just Instagram and and Facebook and Bandcamp and and uh, Sound uh, SoundCloud and all this stuff where you just go, like, "Hey, this guy's pretty cool. He's into the same shit as I'm into. I'm gonna hit him up, see if he wants to uh, start this uh, this." band you know so there's a lot of easier ways to find people and a lot of easier ways to get your music out there but i think the one key thing is these guys have to remember and which marcus king and the rival sons do is these fuckers go out and they play man they play 200 gigs a year you know i mean like with comedy i've done over five thousand shows i'm doing comedy you know, I've yeah. done 200. What is it this year? I've done like, uh, uh, hold on. I'll tell you right now this year I've done, I, I, I keep a, 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 a log of every show just cause I know one day I'm going to write a book. I've done 206 shows this year already. Wow. And, um, you know, the only way that you're going to get good and realize if you love it or not is by doing it. How horrible would it be that if you put a single out and it, it fucking skyrocketed and then you got out on the road and you realized, I don't even like this. <laughs> you know? Where, so where does this work ethic come from? Or is it really just the joy of doing the thing? Being poor, 100%. <laughs> I've been poor my whole life. Look, I got shit. You see me? You know, like, this guy ain't poor, you know, his fucking boots cost a thousand. Yeah. Well, I made a thousand and spent all of it 
on a <laughs> pair of boots that I know are going to last for the next 30 years. So my boots are done. I'm good, you know. But, you know, my dad split from my mom and uh, when I was two and, uh, you know, not really paying child support. My mom was a single mom and the era where women made like five bucks and we were on welfare. And, you know, the, the one thing that my mom would do, though, would be take me to concerts and and uh. and and really, uh, you know, she really was, you know, I think she knew I wasn't going to be in like school wasn't for me, you know. Uh. And she didn't scold me for that. She was like, well, find something you want to do and, and do it a hundred percent. So really my work ethic comes from my mom, because I remember like I would get a job here and there. I had a lot of jobs, you know, but I worked at like a, a foster freeze, flipping burgers, yep. uh, paper routes, anything. And if I was try to like call in sick, she would be like, absolutely not. You know, you get up, they were cool enough to give you the job, fucking show up and do it or quit the job, you know? And uh, I got the work ethic from her, you know, really, when I look back on it. One of the things that I really think, you know, saved my ass when I was younger and, um, you know, just uh, drinking fingernail polish or whatever the fuck was that I didn't have any kind of safety net. It's like poverty yeah. saved me because I, I couldn't do anything on Friday night that was going to fuck me up so much that I couldn't go to work Saturday morning. You know, I worked, I worked flipping burgers at Sonic Burger, and I'm still so grateful for that job when I was 17 because every day now when I wake up, I'm like, I'm, I don't have to flip burgers at Sonic today. Like, it's going to be a good fucking day. You know, yeah. I worked at IHOP for years. The, oh, yeah. Well, also, I got to tell you this is uh, I have no manager or agent. And I, I never have wow. because they're not touching a 56 year old white dude, you know, <laughs> that's not going to pay their, you know, home, their mortgage, you know, the uh, two grand I'm going to get for a weekend at a club. Here's your 10%. They're like, nah, they only, you know, you don't want to fuck around once you, once you hit, there's no old school Peter Grant's out there, you know, really fucking working it. So you know, if you have no agent and you have no manager, if you're not grinding and working, you're not going to get anything. There's no one calling me going, hey, I got fucking, you know, some shit for you at all. Uh, other than Burr, Marin, Diaz, Apatow putting me on a TV show, Tarantino, you know, these were all from grinding and people seeing me going, hey, I think I got something for you. But if I wasn't out in it, if I was just home smoking weed and playing video games like a 25 year old, I wouldn't have got any of the shit that I got, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, it's really true what they say, you know, the, um, people say, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's all luck and, you know, in, in showbiz and bullshit. It's the, the harder you work, the luckier you are, you know, yeah. the, um, that was one of the well, things any, that any, anybody I love. Anybody, yeah. I mean, I was, you know, you watch any documentary. I mean, look, Twisted Sister, uh, that's not a band I love, okay? But I watched their documentary. And if you haven't seen this, it is fucking insane. They were told no every fucking day. 
every day. No, never, never. One of the label guys said never to Jason Flom. Jason Flom owns Lava Records now. Jason Flom is uh, a key part in getting uh, black people out of prison that were wrongfully convicted over complete bullshit fucking charges. And that is his passion. But he was an A&R guy at Atlantic Records. He started Lava Records. He, you know, he found all these great bands early on. But he was told, if you even mention Twisted Sister again, you're fucking going to be blackballed from the business. Get the fuck out of here. And, you know, and, and so he tells Twisted Sister, man, I, I'm trying to sign you and they won't let me. And they keep going. They fucking get a deal and write one of the biggest records. D. Snyder still living off. We're not yeah. going to take it. Every you, Super Bowl commercial has it every year. Here's another five million. <laughs> if, if I'm honest, that was that was a record that was probably um, pre Appetite for Destruction. That you know, I was like a little kid yeah. and seeing seeing that cassette in the store of uh, D. Snyder holding like a ham bone and or in like uh, pink and black, you know, spandex with the yeah. face paint. The yeah, and I was like, oh, yes, I, I, I need all of that in my life, you know. I'll tell you what, hold on a minute here. Uh, there is a song on that record. Hold on a minute. And uh, let's see. I had J.J. French on, by the way. Oh, uh, wow. On the podcast, and I went to his house. He lives in Upper West Side, New York, and he moved back into the house that he grew up in. He, his parents passed away and he, he owns the house now. Uh, and it's just absolutely unreal to interview him in the bedroom where he wrote some of these tunes, you know? Uh, oh my God. That song, the first song on the record, Stay Hungry, is so fucking, like, so real to me. Completely... Uh, a soundtrack song to me, you know, when you hear stay hungry and you hear those lyrics, you know, D Snyder was like, I've been told no forever, but I'm going to stay hungry and keep going, which is fucking wild. You know, I mean, look, I can love a twisted sister song and then I can love Prince sign of the times record. You know, yeah, I, yeah. It, it's, 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 it's just anything that's, good like good songs it's i'm in you know have you uh have you seen the idols documentary i haven't i haven't dude i i, I really got into that band like hard Great in band. the last yeah last six months and then i was flying out to new york on united and one of the like you know you could watch the latest fucking you know marvel movie or there was a documentary about idols wow. and i watched it and it put um, all of their music and their experience in context, and they were they were playing clubs in Bristol that where I was like, man, I played there. There were there were fewer people, but I played there. And like yeah. the oh, Big Jeff Johns, I know him. You know the to see people in it, it was um, I don't know, great documentary. I definitely recommend it. The, I've been um, trying to get Judd to do a doc on me. He's he, I, I can't get him to do it, but. Uh, you know, the, you you do need to write a book, my friend. The yeah. the shit that you've done, the shit that you've seen. The I want to um, write two books. I want to write a book about my life, and then I want to write a book about work ethic and 
and going for it in life, you know? Uh-huh. Because I think that people, you know, they think that if they probably looked at, at my uh, career, comedy career right now, they go, well, you know, Bill Burr helped them and then Marin. And, sure, man. Sure. I did a couple hundred gigs with those guys. Absolutely. But here's the other 5,000 gigs. <laughs> here's the open mics in Bakersfield riding there on a motorcycle when it's fucking almost snowing on the grapevine. Here's a gig I did in Vegas riding a motorcycle through a sandstorm. Here's some shows I did all up and down the coast on my own on a motorcycle, just fucking with five people in the crowd watching a Raider game. You know, it's very easy to uh, cast somebody away when you're mad at yourself and your own work ethic. You're like, ah, well, that guy just sucked a dick. And then the door is open. It's like, ah, I, you know, if that was true, you would be sucking that dick. You know, <laughs> that's all there is to it. The magic dick. But it's, uh, you know, it's uh, there's a, a couple great stories there. And I, I wish Judd would do it because I love his uh, his way of doing documentaries, especially with the uh, the Avid brothers. You know, that documentary. I didn't know anything about that band. I, I got to watch that. It's it's. It's just beautiful, man. It's just beautiful. Jet's a guy I can't really figure out. Yeah. He's like one of those guys that like once in a while my phone will ring and and then other than that, he doesn't follow me on, on the socials or anything. And you know, it's like it's it's weird. It's like he's like, all right, I'm I maybe he he's like, I, I'm gonna help him because you know, fuck if I don't, maybe I can't sleep at night. Like I gotta, yeah, I don't know what it is. But uh, it's not like I uh, Dean. Maybe he's even. maybe he's just a fan. <laughs> no, maybe he just digs your shit, man. Who the, knows? Who I, knows? I, you know, the maybe he's not throwing you a bone, and maybe he <laughs> thinks that you're fucking great, and that's why he wants to use you, right? I love him. I love him. I want him to do my doc. You know, I want yeah. him to start in Yosemite. I already know how I want to do the doc. I want to be at the bottom of Half Dome, and I want to hike it one day. And as I'm walking up to the top, the story unravels the movie. And by the end of the movie, I'm at the top, hopefully, you know, (laughs) (laughs) because it's a hard fucking hike. Brad Wilk and I went and did it during COVID and I hadn't done it in 30 years and he had never done it. And uh, it was fierce. It was fierce. The half dome hike. You uh, you just recently got way healthier, though, didn't you? The, did you have a, a diabetes scare? or? Well, I had full diabetes five full years on. ago, and uh, I knew right then that was it. I'm the type of guy, if I OD on Coke or, uh, you know, fuck it, I go a run on something, and then I'm like, I'm done. I'm out. And I can quit it on the spot, no matter how hard I've been doing it. Cocaine, mm. booze, cigarettes, and sugar was one of those. And that was the hardest ever to quit. But uh, I got a call one day. My doctor said, you have full-blown diabetes. And I was like, whoa, man, I don't want anything to get in the way of stand-up comedy. And I quit sugar that day and never had it again. Uh, I do eat small amounts of fruit in the morning, but there was no way I was going to let sugar 
stop me from doing comedy. Now people go, well, how'd you do it? And I go, you're not going to do it. It's just, uh, it's, there's two words there. Quit sugar. Yeah, but no buts. And most people won't be able to do it because they're not happy in life. I was extremely happy with where I'm at in life. So I was like, I, I'm getting rid of that. I, I, you know, I can't Sh- fucking sugar was, missing a foot. Sugar was my first drug, dude. My, my first drug, drug and my worst drug. Way more than fentanyl or Coke or anything out there. It's the number one uh, demon in this world. And no one, you know, no one gives a fuck. The, um, so we'll wrap up here in a minute, but I got to, uh, I got to know, uh, you're such an encyclopedia of like, um, rock and pop and soul music. The, if you had to pick, uh, three or four artists as the ones who have, who have, you know, ground the hardest, who would you pick as like the hardest working people in showbiz? I have a couple ideas, but I'm really curious to hear your. 100% 100% Prince. There's just no one that comes close to him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely at all. I don't care what anybody says. No one has the uh, catalog that that guy has right now. Where there's thousands of songs. Songwriting is something that most people do to get famous or get somewhere in the biz. Very few people get up and write jokes or songs just to do it. And he got up every day and wrote songs all fucking day. Now, that is a true inside and out genius. I've never seen a guy like that in my entire life. And I've seen him live like 20 times. And from the day I saw him play the beautiful ones on the Purple Rain movie, I was in. Uh, another band, ACDC, just yep. years and years of playing rock in a station wagon with zero money and doing it because the absolute love of fucking music and unbelievable to play music at that dude volume. People don't understand volume three hours a night will fucking murder you. you yeah. Know? It takes it out of you. Yeah, absolutely. James Brown. Come on. Yep. Absolutely. James the, Brown. I mean, uh, not killer. only was he working his ass off, but he's playing during the full blown racism of America and people wanting to kill him and not being able to play certain venues Yep, and, and you know, uh, grinding through the world of racism you know i think it's tough for ageism imagine being james brown in the 50s you know or any of the black artists the blues artists all those guys back then so james brown unbelievable when you see his live shows you can't even believe a human is doing that and no no james brown there's no prince so yeah there's the lineage right there of course what Uh, one yeah of all the stories about james brown one of the one that's that's the most fascinating to me is an early gig that he got before he was anybody was um Little Richard had booked a gig somewhere in Georgia and then had canceled at the last second and the, pr- the promoter was about to lose a shitload of money. So he hired James Brown to come in and put on uh, pancake makeup 
lighten his skin and perform as Little Richard. Whoa. And that was that was the first time that James Brown tried to sing in that high falsetto that then became his calling card. Yeah, that yeah. yeah. And so yeah. I love that story because it's like without that gig, you know, without that gig, we don't have James Brown doing what he did so masterfully influencing Prince. You know what I mean? It's it's one of yeah. those weird sort of like the butterfly wings, you know, in, in rock music. Yeah. To me, you know, you go you go James Brown, you go Prince, you go Terrence Trent Darby, which is Sananda now. He's, he's changed his name. But, uh, you know, those guys inspired each each other. It's like, dude, I get to watch Bill Burr every night and and, you know, do two hours of a master class of comedy. And it's just yeah. it's fucking crazy to be able to see somebody at the highest level. So, you know, Prince watching over and over James Brown and all the different eras, too, you know. But there's a lot of new bands, man, that are working their fucking asses off. Rival Sons do, like I said, a couple hundred gigs a year. Uh, Marcus King, 250 gigs a year. Marcus King got five records out already. A lot of people play music, but they're not really playing music. You know, they're not yeah. in the studio. They're not writing. They're not rehearsing. They're not playing gigs. They sit around for six months. Then they go record a record, they tour for a couple months, and then that's it, you know? And that's not that's not what it is if you really want to play music. Yeah. The uh, For me, man, it's always been the songwriters. Like, you know, lost my two favorite songwriters um, during COVID, John Prine and Mark Lanigan. Oh, yeah. And it just, you know, so fucking devastating. But, you know, both of those guys had just, like, such a massive body of work and, and hugely influential on me. The... Um, what, and, and, you know, one of those shows that was, that was super influential for me, too, was Marin in, like, 2005... He did a little show at uh, UCB downstairs. It was before he'd started the podcast, and the it, it wasn't comedy. It was he was just like really angry and fucked up and like trying to figure trying to sort shit out. And yeah, so we went one in there. Bad show, I think. Yeah, and we, and we went that. in there, and he just sort of like talked about what he'd been going through, and it was so fucking helpful for me. And I, you know, I, I went up to him afterwards and I was like, man, the, I can't say I enjoyed myself, but that was really useful. And he was like, yeah, I'll accept that, you know, yeah, the, yeah. but I, I, I look back to that show so many times and to, I don't know, just feel really fortunate to have had that moment of, of, um, allowing myself to sort of be open and to be influenced by a great artist at a crucial moment, you know? Yeah, it's like uh, Rollins, you know. I saw him do spoken word at UC Berkeley back in the 90s, and it, it completely changed my life, completely. Karen Finley doing performance art, you know, completely changed my life. And those are kind of things that I've carried with me and thought about, you know, somebody like a Maria Bamford. How, look, I, I can't do what they do, but I can see this and try to open up my thought even further on where I could take comedy. I've got some great stories. Okay. Rollins. Okay. How's he tell this story and keep everybody engaged? Karen Finley. This is some fucking weird outside the box shit. And then 
great impressions by Maria Bamford of not cartoons, but humans in her life. How can I do some, you know, bring out my mom or, or my dog or, or whatever into this, you know, thing I'm doing and try to round it out to even bigger. Yeah. I want to be a great, great comedian, but I want to have this depth and, uh, you know, bullets in the chamber of like crowd work, joke writing, voices, uh, stories, everything, and try to make it all one thing. So I'm constantly trying to, uh, and, you know, taking from somebody like a James Brown of being the, you know, the work ethic. Yeah. Yeah. Dean, I could talk to you all day, dude. The you're the fucking greatest. Thank you so much for taking time to do this. The yeah. um, do you have anything uh, coming up that you want to plug, or is there something? What are you excited about this year? What's coming up that you're super excited about? Well, this whole year has been mind-boggling. I opened for Metallica. I, I'm on an arena oh, tour yeah. with fucking Burr right now, and then I'm about to start something that I know is going to be the hardest thing I've ever done which is a rock comedy tour. Marcus King and I started September 8th in New York at the Beacon, and it goes 38 dates. And I know it's going to be not your traditional, you know, audience for comedy. So the challenge of trying to figure out how to wrangle in some people for 25 minutes and do some comedy. And then at the end of the night, we're going to play a song together, whether it be earth, wind and fire or, or ACDC or Prince or, or Skinner or whatever, you know? So I'm really looking forward to that. And I know it's going to be super hard and I'm going to try to film most of it, make a little mini doc of what it's like to be a rock, a comedian open for a rock band. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I'm I'm into all of it, and uh, and whenever you're ready to do that book, hit me up, man. The yeah, man. that's that's uh, that's my thing. The, absolutely, and, absolutely. And I know. Um, Did you write Doug's book? Uh, like uh, co-write it with him? I I didn't do a thing on Doug's book. Uh, you know, I've I've written you know a bunch of books, and then I worked with Mark Lanigan on his book. Right. And I've I've worked as a ghostwriter on a bunch of other things that I'm not allowed to talk about. But yeah. um, Lanigan, man, one of the greatest friends I had in the last ten years. Our bonding was unbelievable over all things fine. I wear boots, music, uh, comedy, films, unreal. You know, I, it's, I, I it, dude, I it's funny guy beyond. when, when you were telling, uh, when you were telling the story about the thousand dollar boots, that made me think of land again. Cause I was like, yeah. if that motherfucker had, you know, 1100 bucks, he would spend a thousand dollars on boots. And, My favorite you know, part is when I'm interviewing him and we're midway in and I go, so, I mean, like when you're working on, you know, bubble gum and this is then he goes, Hey, forget all about that. Uh, Where'd you get those glasses? It is the <laughs> funniest fucking thing ever because I am the same way. I know during the interview is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this guy's eyewear is fucking great. You know? yeah. It was like, oh my God, we fucking exploded mid interview on that. I was like, oh, these, oh man, these are fucking Tom Brown. You know, and we just, we went somewhere else, you know? I was so I was cleaning my office the other day and I found my first notepad from the first time I sat down with him to sort of interview him about the book and stuff. Yeah. And the first line that I read was I could always drink gin. 
And yeah. that's the kind of that's the kind of person Lanigan was. Is just one line from him, and the man walks right back into the room. He yeah. was, you know, he was once in a lifetime. He was, um, yeah. I mean, he was a, a tremendous friend. I fucking adored the guy. I miss him dearly. Oh uh, my god! I'm and, still, I'm still floored that he's gone. Absolutely fucking floored that he's gone. Yeah. The it's you know. Um, I've told this story before, but you know, worship Guns N' Roses my entire life. Every record I've put out has there's a, a there's a musical nod somewhere to a Guns N' Roses song. Yeah. And um the at Lanigan's funeral, uh Slash came and sat in the pew right next to me. And it's like the bathroom or a funeral. Those are two places where you don't tell somebody, hey, yeah. man, I really love your shit. That one part where you're fucking soloing on the dolphin's back, like that rocks. I couldn't say that. Can I get you know, a selfie the, with you, man? Yeah. <laughs> like a funeral selfie. There's nothing grosser than a funeral selfie. <laughs> But the, you know, the one good part was, uh, Josh on me was like telling a story about, you know, what a shit guitar player Lanigan was and slash. And I laughed at the same time. And I was like, Oh, just me, just me and my buddy slash, like laughing at our poor dead friend about what a shit guitar player he was. Oh my God. Such a fucking weird time. So great. All I hear is hanging tree. Whenever I hear that guy's name, it comes into my head every time, every time. Everybody has that one Lanigan song, like yep. the, the first time that it got you, the first time it really sort of shook you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What a voice. Oh, God. Dean, thank you so fucking much, man. If uh, if everything falls apart in, you, in your life and you ever wind up in Phoenix again, hit me up. You got it, man. You got <laughs> it. Thank you so much for having me, buddy. All right. Take care, brother. I'll see you. See ya. Later. Folks, thank you so much for listening. I know there's uh, a million podcasts out there. We appreciate you, uh, you spending your time with us. The um, if you're digging the show, if you're enjoying it, if you if these conversations uh, move you, make you laugh, annoy you, piss you off, um, please take a minute to uh, to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, it helps us grow the show and it helps other people find it. Um, if you'd like to hear bonus episodes, song demos, just sort of uh, ranting off the cuff uh, conversations, all sorts of different uh, bonus material, writing advice, uh, personal blog posts and stuff like that, uh, go to patreon.com slash Mishka Shivali. Uh, we will be having monthly episodes up there with my mom and I answering questions from readers and there's all kinds of good stuff there uh thank you so much for supporting mishka shabali is catching up with friends who are arguably more talented than him